Welcome to Moving Beyond Pandemic, the Migration Policy Institute's podcast about travel, migration and mobility during COVID-19. I'm Megan Benton. I'm the Research Director for MPI's International Work and also for MPI Europe, our sister organisation. At MPI, we've spent a lot of this year desperately trying to keep up and understand a rapidly evolving world of migration and mobility. But with the news that there might be one or more viable vaccines on the horizon, it seemed like a good time to step back and consider what 2021 might hold in store for the global movement of people. So from how a vaccine might restart global tourism to issues about the supply and demand of labour migration. And I was very excited to do a bit of COVID crystal ball gazing with Alan Gamlin, who is Associate Professor of Human Geography at Monash University in Melbourne. He's an expert on diasporas and transnationalism, but most recently he's been working on the implications of COVID for migration and mobility and is writing a book on this topic. And in addition to his academic work, he's been um, an advisor to various international organizations and governments. And he's a great systems thinker, I think, as, as, you'll, as you'll hear from our interview. And back in June, he wrote this highly prescient paper that sets out 10 predictions, or at least they're framed as questions, but they're kind of predictions, um, including will COVID travel bubbles become economic regions? Will immobility reshape cities? Will commuter travel decline? And the big one, will countries need less labour migration? So I wanted to chat to him to see what progress there's been on these topics. And spoiler alert, he said that the answer to most of his questions was yes. Hi, Alan. Thanks so much for for joining me. Thanks for having me, Megan. Uh, How are things? How's Melbourne? Great. Really good to be coming out of lockdown and into into summer. Well, unfortunately, uh, we're thinking of you guys there going into winter. Yeah, sort of the and reverse situation for us. Um, so I've wanted to chat to you for a while because you wrote this great paper uh, back in June, I think, um, about how this might be the end of the age of migration. And you set out 10 really provocative questions on how COVID's kind of reshaping migration and mobility on whether countries will need less labour migration, on migrant decision making, on international student migration, on on travel bubbles. Um, and what I wanted to do with our discussion today is, is force you to answer some of your own questions <laughs> and make some predictions. So perhaps we could begin, I mean, we're, we're sort of almost closing out 2020. What do you think now are the most pressing and unanswered questions about the future of migration? It's a good question. Uh, I still think that these 10 questions are pretty important. I would say that there needs to be some detail, obviously, fleshed out in some of those questions. So, for for example, um, you know, questions around migrant decision-making. Um, obviously, the calculus is different for different types of mi- migrants. Um, and while we're still in the kind of the emergency stage of, of the pandemic with lockdowns still closing and opening and closing again, uh, it's difficult to make predictions around things like, well, will there be a sudden surge of forced migration as pressure builds up? Um, so those those kinds of questions are still sort of unanswered, and I think need fleshing out out of those ten that I that I raised in that paper. Um, but but I still think that those ten capture really a lot of the things that we need to know. I also think that probably 
the answer to quite a few of them is is turning out so far to be yes. <laughs> I mean, perhaps we could just talk a little bit more about decision making since you mentioned that. Uh, sure. So, so you talked in your paper about how some people might be more risk averse, others might be more desperate. I think one thing that's quite clear now is that there's probably going to be a very uneven economic recovery and public health situation for the foreseeable future. So with news about vaccines on the horizon that potentially, you know, could come into play in the beginning of 2021, do you think that you can just kind of turn the tap on and then there'll be a backlog of interest to people who want to move? Or is are we likely to see 2021 look quite similar to 2020? Well, I think there will probably be a little bit of a surge and, you know, you can start to turn the tap back on, but it's it's not going to, you know, it's like when you first turn the tap on, there might be a little jet of water and then it settles down to a trickle. Um, and I think that's probably more likely to be the case. I mean, number one is that early 2021 is very optimistic, probably even unrealistic for mass production of a vaccine to the level where the required number of people will be immune. So we know that, you know, one of the horses in the race to produce a vaccine is is going to come through in the coming months. Um, that, that will almost certainly happen by the first quarter of uh, 2021. But the mass production of that vaccine on a global scale to the extent where, you know, 40 to 60, I think, is the threshold needed um, for herd immunity and 40 to 60% of the population to be immunised. It's not something like smallpox where you need a really high level of immunisation, but, you know, there still needs to be a substantial portion of the global population to be covered in order for the vaccine to be effective. And that requires a whole supply chain of materials for the uh, for vaccine production, which is probably not going to be ready f- for quite some time after that. So I saw an interview uh, with between Bill Gates and the editor of The Economist projecting more like, well, a lot of it will be done by the end of 2021 with a bit uh, lagging over into 2022. So that rather than mm. early 2021 being the time frame for, you know, g- getting a vaccine out to everybody and opening up the borders, it's really more like, 2022 and by that time quite a few things will have changed people will have made plans around uh, lower level lower levels of migration and mobility quite a few you know sort of long-term contractual arrangements for businesses and uh, and policies will be locked in on assumptions of lower migration and mobility so long story short I don't think we will see a snapback to to uh, you know, December 2019 levels of migration mobility next year. And I think this is much more likely to be a multi-year trough with some spikes of uh, kind of unpredictable migration, like the repatriations that we've seen in recent months. Um, And similarly, you know, when circumstances allow, maybe surges of people escaping uh, their predicaments, which have become worse during the pandemic and so forth. But I think these will be spikes in a overall downward trend for a few years. So sort of a, a jagged downward trending line in migration mobility for a few years. I think I think that's I think that's right. I think one big question is 
uh, how labor demand will be affected by various developments on the horizon. So if you think about a lot of destination countries, you know, they've they've had some labor shortages in sectors like agriculture, but a lot of sectors that are heavy um, employers of immigrants, like service sector, tourism, restaurants, you know, have been totally decimated. What do you think that um, the labor markets look like for the sort of first half of 2021 and, um, and labor migration, I guess? Yeah, good question. Well, the paper predicted that there would be an overall uh, decline in demand for labor migration, and I think that's the case. I think we'll see, continue to see an overall reduction in, in demand for labor migration, but an increase in demand for certain types of labor mobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me explain what I mean there. We've seen demand for labor migration decrease because unemployment's at an historical high. And the amount of the decrease varies by sector and skill level. Of course, migrants tend to be overrepresented at the low and the high ends of the skill spectrum because they do the jobs that native workers won't do or can't do. And in general, the lower skill jobs have been harder hit because the higher skilled ones can be done remotely. So there's this overall you know, reduction in the number of jobs, uh, increase in the size of the... Um, the labour market pool from which um, employers can recruit, and then at the same time political pressure uh, to prioritise native workers over migrant workers, which overall is a is downward pressure on um, demand for labour labour migration. But countervailing pressure is that the that the pandemic has also disrupted seasonal labour mobility, for example creating uh, large agricultural labour shortages, um, obviously in, in sectors where the, uh, where the mobility is the product, like tourism, you know, the huge increases for um, demand simply because not enough of it's happening to keep, you know, to keep the lights on. So, again, my, my prediction is continued overall reduction in demand for labour migration for the next I would say one to three years, we could safely say that's the case, but there'll be spikes of demand in particular sectors, which just heavily depend on migrant labour or, or temporary migrant labour or mobility. Um, you know, they'll, they'll immediately need to recoup some of the recruitment they haven't been able to do because of lockdowns. Mm. I guess one thing it depends on is how successful countries are in their efforts to to think creatively about alternatives. So obviously there's a lot of interest in tapping into out-of-work residents and even thinking about how you do things like regularise unauthorised immigrants and tap into other pools of, of underused labour that are already in the country. That's right. And this, you know, it's not a matter of reinventing the wheel. We've had, um, you know, amnesty as a sort of de facto migration policy in you know, significant parts of the world for many decades, um, you know, just sort of allow, to- tolerate irregular migration and then regularise people every few years um, as a way of, of, of managing migration. And, um, you know, similarly, we've seen periods where there's been concerted attempts to, you know, to, to prioritise natives, where we've seen nativism grow. So it, it's not going to be a case of reinventing the wheel um, when countries are looking for 
for ways of doing this. I think that they it would be surprisingly easy for them to to um, reduce the uh, focus on on migration as the as a, as a, a stimulator of economic growth. They'll have a bunch of tools to do that. Whether that's the right thing to do or not is a whole other question. Um, I think it could potentially be quite traumatic and lead to all sorts of um, both economically tra- traumatic but also socially and politically traumatic because, uh, you know, it could, could lead to all sorts of, um, and already is leading to all sorts of anti-immigrant hate crime and, um, you know, just a reduction in the overall position of minorities um, in societies that are trying to, to keep the border a little more closed to migrants. Uh, one thing that a lot of people have been talking about is um, the other way that you deal with labour shortages, which is through uh, investments in the productivity of your workforce, so technology and training. And there's obviously a lot of chat about whether the pandemic might catalyse automation and digitisation and AI. I think um, one thing that's always struck me is how whenever pre-pandemic days, whenever you saw estimates of how many jobs might be lost to automation, it was sort of presented as if it was a a fixed thing, but it's actually very, very dynamic. And it will be interesting to look and see whether this massive natural experiment that's happening with, uh, you know, like a lower period of migration, um, how employers will respond so, you know, they, they respond to supply and demand. If you have fewer workers, fewer migrant workers in your workforce, then you might decide to to automate certain aspects. And there are lots of examples in history, like the closing of the Bracero guest worker program in the US, which is sometimes credited with the rollout of mechanical harvesting. So is this a similar a similar moment? You know, what does it mean for restaurants as they shift to take out fewer people needed to do in-person service elements? Um, These are all, I think, really dynamic issues. It's very unclear. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a really excellent point, Megan. Um, The classical kind of economic theory, you know, think of Charles Kindleberger, you know, past president of the American Economic Association. Um, His argument that one of the most you know, um, important developmental factors of migration is that it changes wage levels uh, in countries and higher wages as a stimulus to uh, to automation, you know, rather than just hiring more workers in order to get productivity. And employer goes, hmm, those workers are starting to get expensive and hard to get hold of. I better, uh, I better make some new technology that makes each one of my workers more productive instead of... Um, instead of just hiring more workers. So I think that we're absolutely at one of those moments. Um, And in that sense, as in fact is the case in in, in many other areas, the pandemic's proving to be a trend accelerator. You know, we've already seen this, uh, you know, technology uh, has been rapidly uh, uh, growing, um, increasingly, you know, sort of disrupting all aspects of society, and becoming, you know, innovation has for a long time been, been you know, the, the key key driver of growth. And the pandemic, through this mechanism that you just pointed out, you know, that making it harder to get uh, workers just adds to that trend of investments in technology. So, you know, the high-tech sector, it's raining cash in the tech sector now as a result of the pandemic. Um, so, so I think we will see 
all sorts of investments there. One one set of investments is obviously going to is really happening in how do we make um, remote work more effective and productive to overcome some of the limitations around you know informal interaction and culture and team building and so forth. But then there's also just going to be a whole bunch of things like you say around automation of low skilled work. And, you know, even in professional services, where will AI, um, you know, what will be the role of AI in industries like accounting and medicine and even law and so forth? Um, I think we'll see the pandemic being a a big trend accelerator there. And that, again, will probably, um, there'll there'll be a sort of an interaction there that will depress demand for, it, it will be stimulated that, those investments in technology by a reduction in labour migration. And on the other hand, those new technologies will depress demand for more labour migration. So I think, yeah, these are all factors that say you're probably going through a bit of a trough historically. And there's a lot of really important points there and a good reminder that this isn't just about the low wage end of the spectrum, but also about, as you say, jobs in like counting and paralegals that, that might shift overseas because now they can be done remotely um and then as you say the 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 tech sector might be booming but it's also thinking differently about the geographical distribution of its workforce lots of companies announcing they've gone fully remote either for the next either for the duration of the pandemic or the next couple of years or in some cases forever what do you think um what does this mean for migration and mobility um does it mean that a lot of companies are no longer going to go through the hoops of bringing in high-skilled workers? Does it mean, as you pointed to in your paper, a kind of decline of big cities and the traditional destinations that are losing their edge relative to places with lower house prices? Um, I think there's a possible scenario in which you find kind of mid-sized cities seeing this as a moment for economic revival because families and young professionals can move in and they'll need a sort of complementary immigrant workforce potentially if if that becomes a boom I guess looking a little bit further ahead beyond the immediate future. Well I think to to those two questions I'd say a tentative yes Um, so so on the one hand um, I think that this will depress uh, high-skilled migration to some extent, although that may be more about the supply side than the demand side. It might be less about employers saying we can't be bothered jumping through the hoops and more about high-skilled migrants having more choice. So that comes back to the question of migrant decision-making. So you know, we expected in the paper that voluntary migrants would be more risk averse. You know, this is including high skilled migrants. They'd be more risk averse about migrating, while the irregular and forced migrants would be more pressured to move as a result of the pandemic. And that's basically panned out as expected. So we've seen all forms of legal migration mobility have dropped dramatically. Um, irregular migration seems to have held fairly steady, though. Um, and you know, we know there's a lot of pressure building up for. Uh, for migration out of humanitarian hotspots that currently doesn't really have an outlet because of the pandemic. So I think that maybe the the supply side might be the the um, most affected uh, in terms of high skill. Um, and then in cities, I think yes, we're definitely seeing a uh, uh, a shift in the way that 
cities are organised spatially. Um, you know, I saw some research presented uh, recently by a colleague, um, uh, Professor James Curry, um, who's a transport studies scholar, and um, based on a number of different cities which have gone through lockdown and have come out of it, um, he was predicting essentially a 20% decline, post-pandemic decline in use of public transport. We've seen that, um, you know, the froth has been taken right out of the inner city property markets in major cities around the world. There, you know, there's um, lots of empty apartments, um, you know, the, the, uh, the ones that uh, were kind of marginal in terms of profit for the, for the landlords are now starting to go at fire sale prices. Uh, and at the same time, we're seeing livability massively increase in some of the suburbs around major cities, um, you know, as people can work from home, particularly there's access to, um, you know, to amenities like parks and, and other sort of entertainment and play areas. Those those suburbs are becoming much more livable and people are moving out and up, as they used to say, to the, to the leafy suburbs and beyond into those second-tier cities. That, so the secondary cities, or in Australia, we'd call them the regional cities, uh, regional centres. Um, pe- people are moving there because, you know, they might need to only come into work uh, a couple of days a week, it seems likely that that will probably be possible on a long-term basis for many people um, in high-skilled work. And so we're seeing, you know, the property market running hot uh, around major cities in the in the sort of regional areas around major cities. So I think this will have profound changes in both of those. Even I found myself longing for the suburbs, as you were describing the amenities there as a as a lifelong city dweller. They're definitely losing their their lure. Um, I wanted to ask you about travel bubbles, particularly since you're in Australia, the you know source of the most famous travel bubble. Um, but even the Trans Tasman bubble has really struggled to get off the ground. You said in your in your paper that it would be interesting if travel bubbles um, are set up and essentially come to define um, economic uh, mobility regions based on public health criteria. Do you still think that's a likely possible scenario? I think of the 10 questions or hypotheses in that paper, that's the one that um, hasn't really come out as I'd expected and as... uh, you know, outfits like the Economist Intelligence Unit had predicted. So, you know, the EUI, EIU um, went in with some pretty pretty strong predictions that companies should be, firms should be preparing for the regionalisation of supply chains and that this would be, you know, this could be potentially a long-term deglobalisation event um, and that, you know, it might lead to re-regionalisation. To me, that... Yeah, that certainly was an interesting question. It doesn't seem to have happened, um, largely, uh, largely because the country because things are changing so rapidly. So at the time that the travel bubbles were being negotiated between Australia and New Zealand, those countries were getting on top of their first wave of infections, and then Australia went through a second wave, so it couldn't join the travel bubble. Um, in Europe and, and the UK. Um, seem to have seen similar things. And so we've gone, it's been a much more fluid and, and dynamic uh, set of negotiations, which I think actually is one of the things we, that really need further research is these air bridges and um, visa-free travel arrangements, which are negotiated um, between countries on a sort of a short-term basis. We'll let your people in with 
more or less screening, depending on who you are. And I think that's really a fruitful area of research into how those agreements are being negotiated. What, what are the determinants? Well, first of all, what are the patterns of those agreements? Is there anything we can generalise about them? Or is it still all too fluid? And secondly, you know, what is it that's driving them? Are they politically negotiated? Are they negotiated on the basis of public health advice? Is it, it, it you know, what is it? What's the basis of these agreements? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, sorry, to answer your question, that that the travel bubbles um, happening and evolving into economic regions hasn't happened, and I now doubt that it will happen to the extent that I thought it might at the time of having that paper. But on the other hand, the other nine questions seem to have been Yeah, well, they, they might just happen more slowly. I mean, I think um, that when we have a, a viable vaccine and an extremely uneven vaccine access, you might find more countries in the situation that New Zealand was in, which is that it had, you know, sufficiently low cases that it could trace them pretty easily. And if you have neighbouring countries that are in broadly the same situation, then at least the public health conditions are there. I I don't know. I I think that the pandemic has been weird because some things have moved really fast and some things have moved really slowly. um, And that may yet be a prediction that that pans out. Um, All right. uh, We're getting close to time. So final question, which is probably a bit unfair because, again, it's throwing your own phrasing back at you but uh do you think this is the end of the age of migration as you as you asked in your paper <laughs> well it, you know uh, as i said in the paper it's always risky making predictions because you know um, the answer to that question depends on decisions that people haven't made great thing about humans is they can change their minds so um you know, fundamentally, we don't know. There are some things we do know, though, quite quite a few, some of the things we've discussed already now, and that suggests that essentially it, it really it's not feasible or realistic for migration to, to bounce back in a short term. We know that it's also um, necessary for some uh, you know, firms and governments to lock in arrangements that... Uh, you know, that need to be conservative and, and assume lower levels of migration mobility um, for a period, and so they will become self-perpetuating in a way. And so I think we're seeing, rather than just a, a, a short spike downwards for 2020 and migration mobility, we're more like seeing a, you know, two- to five-year trough in migration, and, and a big trough. Um so if this is the age of migration, it doesn't mean that there's never going to be migration again. What we've seen in the, in the past is that migration's gone through these cyclical waves, right? There's been periods of migration boom and, and periods of migration bust. The last big migration bust globally was around World War II. Um, the pandemic's really kind of, kind of event on the same scale as that. And I think that we could see... Um, a very significant uh, reduction in overall international migration mobility, uh, you know, for, for a three to five year period, it might not be as severe as, as you know, World War, um, you know, touch wood. Um, but, but certainly I think predictions about things bouncing back to normal in, in a year or two are, are probably too optimistic and that we should prepare for, you know, a, a structural shift here that may last a considerable period. 
Uh, well, thank you so much. It's been really great to talk to you. I've learned so much. Thanks for your time. Well, I feel the same way. It's great to connect me, and thanks very much for having me. So Alan paints a picture of a world with much lower levels of mobility for the next few years at least. But I thought his idea that this period of muted migration will be punctuated by spikes was quite an interesting one. So spikes in repatriation of stranded migrants, of people escaping situations that have worsened under pandemic, spikes in labour migration in particular sectors. This fits with what I've been saying for a while, which is that the process of reopening economies and borders in particular isn't likely to be linear, but it's more likely to be two steps forward and one step back. And I think even with a vaccine, we're likely to see a lot of fits and starts as different co- countries recover at different rates and get get over the virus at different rates. Um, another idea of Alan's that really resonated with me is the idea that global migration will become split between those who can afford to pick and choose their destination or indeed choose not to move and those who are just driven by desperation. I think on the one hand this could could shake up the global race for talent, have new destinations becoming the, the leaders. On the other hand it could mean more irregular movements, more people on the move with unmet protection needs, Uh, more people relying on smugglers, more people stuck in extremely precarious displacement situations. If you're interested in reading more of Alan's work, um, you can find his paper, uh, Migration and Mobility After the 2020 Pandemic, The End of an Age, on the Compass website, so the University of Oxford Compass website. Um, We at MPI have a ton of resources on COVID and migration um, at migrationpolicy.org forward slash coronavirus. And while you're there, I'd also point you to a paper from MPI's founder and um, President Emeritus, Dimitri Papadimitriou, which is entitled Managing the Pandemic and Its Aftermath, Economies, Jobs and International Migration in the Age of COVID-19, which is really um, an excellent paper that you should all read. (laughs) Uh, In coming weeks, we'll be digging into the news on the vaccine race and considering what this means for mobility and borders. We'll also be looking again at the evidence on how and whether border closures can prevent the spread of pandemics. And please stay tuned wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, Finally, I'd like to thank my colleagues, Lisa Dixon, Michelle Middlestadt and Kenya Guerrero for producing this podcast. And the music you heard today was Juno in the Space Maze by Loopop. I'm Megan Benton. I'll see you next time.